The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia this is Toby Van Hai with a special pop-up episode of Gone By Lunchtime. Normal service will resume next week with Annabelle Mather and Ben Thomas. About three weeks ago, early in October, Ruff Manji came into the studio to talk about his new role as the leader of the Opportunities Party, or TOP. You'll remember, of course, that the party began in, I think it was 2016, with Gareth Morgan as the leader, and then subsequently Jeff Simmons took over. So Ruff Manji is the third leader, and he announced recently a tax policy, tax being the talk of the town lately as we get into election mode, which included some interesting sweeping new proposals based on land value tax and getting rid of tax in the lower bracket. Uh, Anyway, we talked about that a bit. We talked about his strategy for the party, whether this is the, the last chance saloon for a party as it goes into its third election. And his plans to stand in Elam, where he stood as an independent in 2017, coming second to Jerry Brownlee beating the Labour candidate. You might also remember him for his involvement in the Labour Council. He was a two-term councillor there and an important part of the Christchurch post-quake rebuild. Anyway, good chat. Enjoy it. We talked about all those things and, of course, touched on cats. A big thanks to spin-off members who keep the wheels turning in here and to Tiahe Butler, the producer extraordinaire of Gone by Lunchtime. Kia ora, Raf Manji. Thanks for coming in. Kia ora, Toby. Thanks for having me. Um, you, uh, a lot of people will know you from your days as a councillor on Christchurch, but in February this year, I think I have it right, you began taking on the mantle of leader of the Opportunities Party a.k.a. top. Was it February? End of January, I think. All right. Close enough. To be exact. Close, but yes. (laughs) I probably started in February. Was there a... How did that work? Was there a courtship from them, or did you have to... uh, Were you elected leader? How did that work? Well, I mean, I was appointed by the board, essentially. But yes, I'd had a conversation with uh, Jeff Simmons, who'd been the previous leader, saying that... um, Top was looking for a new leader, um, and since Jeff had stepped down, there was a sort of a um, a stand-in leader, Shai Navar, mm. and Shai was um, about to have a baby, so they were thinking, "Let's <laughs> we need to um, fill this position." Uh, and yeah, I had a few conversations with them, and you know, I had been asked to stand for Top in 2017 right. in Ireland, 
And I sort of said, look, what I'm doing in Ireland is quite specific. And yes, it looked very odd to people from outside of Christchurch, but it was very, you know. This is when you stood as an independent. Yes, it was all about the earthquake. Um, it was all about the funding gap that needed to be filled, such as the money for the stadium, which I ended up getting, um, even though it took a long time to be deployed. And so I didn't want to get, in a way, I didn't want it to be tainted by any kind of political stuff. Uh, so, But I'd, I'd kept in touch with them. The policies, clearly, I, I was very supportive of. And, uh, yeah, Jeff um, had a chat with me, and then I spoke to Shai and the rest of the board, and, yeah, and then thought about it, because I knew this was quite a challenging task. And I, in a way, stepped away from politics, um, even though people kept thinking, oh, what are you going to do politically? And I was going to say, I'm not doing anything, actually. Mm. I'm thinking about the, the next uh, phase of my life. And I was uh, actually had prepared a PhD proposal on citizenship in the 21st century. That's, and I was doing some research in that area. Mm. And it's, it's something I've been quite interested in for a while because I think it's going to be a big issue for us in the future. You know, the whole concept of a you know, social contract, what does that look like? And, um, but I just felt that the, the timing where we were in, let's say, the long-term economic cycles, political cycles, social cycles, that the next election was going to be a little bit different. Mm. And that if uh, a party like the Opportunity Party was ever going to have an impact or make it into parliament, this was the time that it would happen. And, yeah, I thought, okay, let's do it. Let's have a go. What makes you think this one is going to be different? I mean, one of the looking at the the way that the party groupings are organised at the moment, in some ways, it appears quite a simple op- option for voters. Insofar as you choose whether you want coffee or tea, one of the two, and then you how many how many how many cubes of sugar do you want in it? Right, with the on one side act to to make make the the right party more to the right and greens to make theirs more to the to the more to the left labor more to the left now that's a, that's a very very generalized broad approach but what is the gap there for top yeah i mean i think actually that that's a very accurate description and when i was talking about you know the electoral strategy to the team you know say 6 months ago i said for us to succeed we actually need the two blocks to be in balance and they've come back into balance. Okay. So that's actually good. Now, you might think that's kind of actually counterintuitive, but then you go to the next stage where actually people then look and, and go, yeah, it's coffee or tea. Actually, maybe I'd like something different. Maybe I'd like a, a cheer drink. Kombucha. Yeah, kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> a cheer, or cheer seeds or just some iced water with lemon. Yeah. So what I'm finding and what people are saying to me is actually we'd, we'd like something different. Now... If there was a much more kind of chaotic, um, you know, polling structure at the moment, people might be not thinking that. But at the moment, it's congealed. I mean, actually, when you look at the polling over the last six months, it hasn't really changed that much in terms of the two blocks. So if we get to the point where it's kind of 45 each, give or take, uh, something needs to break that deadlock. But it's also people want something else. Mm. So the problem for say, the Greens or ACT, is yes, their, their votes might go up. But if they're coming from National Labour, it doesn't change. It might say, oh, we'll get an extra cabinet minister, for example. But it doesn't change what's being offered to the population. So in a way, MMPs sort of congealed, and we're offering something new. And I think that actually helps us. And so the position of the Opportunities Party remains as it has 
if I'm right, from day one, that negotiations are an option with either party and that there would be no, which I'm thinking presumably implicitly then rules out any uh, accommodation in an electorate seat. Well, those are two different issues. I think in, in terms of how we're approaching, let's say, you know, post-election um, structures, we're very clear we're not going to go into government with either you know, potential block. We will sit on the cross benches. We will, if we're in a position, have some kind of very basic confidence and supply agreement. So no, no ministerial no, no, positions. No, I mean I can rule that out right, right. now. And 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 for a very obvious point, if we come in, forget about the current polling. I mean, the last Roy Morgan a few nights ago, I think it was two and a half percent. So call it three MPs. Maybe if things really take off and it looks like I might win Ireland, you know, maybe that helps the party vote. Maybe we have five. We're still a new party in Parliament. You know, we've got to get our feet under the desk. And we really want to focus on the particular policy areas that we're interested in. And I think, you know, ministerial positions are just a distraction. You know, you've seen it with the Green Party, the, the issues it's caused um, within the party, you know, even though I think James has done a fabulous job mm. as Minister of Climate Change. Um, and I think even New Zealand First, you know, they came in with all this fire and brimstone in 2017. And you read the speeches Winston gave back then. It was like, you know, everything's going to change. And then it didn't. You know, if you look at his his speeches, um, his early speeches, it was like, yeah, end of neoliberalism. We're going to kind of reform things. And you thought capital gains tax would have been, out, you know, straight out. And everything just died. And I think a lot of that is to do with becoming ministers and being distracted. So we don't want any distractions at all. So, yeah, we won't be getting involved but in it's, that. But it's an unusual pitch, isn't it? Vote for us for our party. We want to affect change, but we don't want to be in government. Yeah, because we'll affect change through the ability to input into legislation and vote for legislation in Parliament. And if our vote is needed that's going to be quite a powerful position. We will be in a position to influence the budget, and through the budget is where we will actually demonstrate where our kind of policy interests lie. So the likelihood would be, just to be clear on this, a confidence and supply agreement in which you uh, ensured the stability of a government yes. over a certain period of time in return for a few policy points, and we'll get to some of those in a minute, yeah. uh, and then vote on a bill-by-bill -bill basis yeah. from the crossbenchers. Yeah. And of course, there'll, there'll be some bills where we have uh, quite strong interest in and some where perhaps we don't. You know, we won't have the, the numbers of people. So I think we've got to be realistic about, I mean, I'm very focused on what can we deliver? I mean, having been in council for six years in that post-earthquake environment, knowing how hard it is to deliver things and the pitfalls to fall, the things you can really get tied up in for a very, very long time, um, It's we're really outcomes focused and... Yeah, that's um, that's yeah, that's going to be where we put our energy into. Mm. And I think you can. I mean, you can. Yes, you're not going to have budgets, but you can gain, um, for example, access to policy documents and officials when you're discussing particular policy areas. A bit like Jeanette did, I think, when she had the um, role around insulation. Jeanette for Simon. Yes. Um, so they had a confidence supply agreement mm -hmm. with the national government where, you know, she was allowed quite a lot of access around that particular issue. So I think that's our focus. Second term, different story. Um, we might be in a different position. But, yeah, I think it's just good to get this stuff right out mm -hmm. there now. You 
talk about Christchurch, you have uh, some name recognition and reputation there, um, both in terms of your time post-earthquake on council and also uh, in your involvement in the response after the mosque attacks. Uh, Ilum as a focus, you've stood there before, 2017. You did, you did all right. You did all right. What remind me? What did you get? What did you get? I got to just 23 and a half percent of the okay, vote, 8,300 votes. Not shabby. Not yeah. shabby. How much of the strategy going into this election rests on that island seat? We know how hard it is for parties that aren't either, you know, that are, that are new parties that aren't splintered off another one. I don't think it's ever happened that they've ever gotten to any. No, it hasn't happened. Hasn't so, happened. so, so, does that mean that you are bidding the house on your on 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 the island constituency for the using the coattail mechanism as it's called? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it it, it works two ways. I mean, yes, we've thought a lot about Island over the last six months. We've looked at the numbers. Uh, we think we can win it, and that's primarily because Jerry is not running, right? And also. Jerry's potential successor, Sam McDonald, who's a city councillor, is also not running. So National will have a new, completely new candidate there who probably won't, certainly from the people I've heard, have a history of representation in that area, which I think is quite critical. So it means those votes which were pretty hardwired to Jerry. Hmm. Um, I mean, the reason I was unsuccessful in 2017 is twofold. One, Labour ran against me quite strongly, even though, you know, I, I, I spoke to Phil Twyfe and said, look, you have a chance of getting rid of Jerry here. Why wouldn't you take it? But the tribalism was just too strong uh, for them. So they actually tried to, you know, say, hey, we're going to do well in this seat. So that, that didn't help. And also, yeah, Jerry's votes were much more stickable, you know, for the electorate vote um, than I expected. Mm-hmm. So even though I did get some votes from National, not enough. I mean, we, need, we worked out we needed 14,000 Um but, you know, looking at it now, we think it is definitely possible. A lot of those votes will be probably more amenable to supporting somebody essentially that they know. And I think to be the electorate MP, that's quite critical. The policy that you laid out on the weekend, I think we're talking, I should say, on Thursday the 6th of October. And this podcast will probably go out a little bit after that. So just to locate everybody in the moment, you on Sunday laid out. It was the first, first kind of. It was it was the first policy package since you became leader mm. of the party, and it was going to the sexiest topic of the moment, thanks to Liz Truss. And and then this week we had we had we had a, a, a much lower deficit than expected, which has prompted another run of discussions around. Tax, tax, tax. Your proposal, your policy is a land valuation tax. Tell us about that yep. and why that's the answer to our woes. Well, actually, the policy that we proposed, which I think has got a lot of parties in a bit of a pickle, and the PM was struggling to respond to it post-cab when she was asked about it by Bernard Hickey. This is the income tax part of the yeah, tax so switch basically it's a, talk Yeah, about. so we've actually proposed a tax switch. Mm. So it's fiscally neutral. Mm-hmm. That's really the key thing. And the two bits of the switch, um, and, and to give you an example that people will be familiar with, in, I think, 2012, National also implemented a tax switch mm-hmm. um, where they cut income tax and they raised GST. And at the time, and it took them a long time to get to that point. They were trying to sort of 
work out how to pitch it. And eventually they came up with the idea of the tax switch and they got it through. And that was regarded as slightly regressive in terms of GST does tend to impact um, people on lower incomes relatively because they spend all of their money. Um, but that was a tax switch. Now, we're proposing to shift the burden of tax again from income, so income tax, um, income tax cuts, and you know one of the the new things we're proposing, which is new for New Zealand, is a tax-free threshold mm. of fifteen thousand dollars. And so of course, up to fifteen thousand dollars, yes, the tax rate is zero. Is zero, and I know we'll acknowledge the spin-off did write about that couple of weeks ago, like, I think, import the tax code from Australia. Yeah. Um, now, I had been thinking about it for a, a bit longer than that, but um, that was good. So you claim. So, so I claim. <laughs> but who knows? You never know. Do you? Um, I'll go and show my Word document. No, but I mean, that, you know, that was, that was a good article. And so income tax cuts, $6.35 billion approximately. Um, and we also added in a $900 million income support package, which I would like to talk about because it's really critical because it's the Child Poverty Action Group um, in work tax credit proposal and extra funding for people with disabilities and children with disabilities, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. Mm-hmm. So that leaves you how much that so you're missing from seven, the revenue? Yeah, just over $7 billion. Okay. Noting that all these numbers obviously are, you know, are approximate. Yeah. Now, so we have talked, well, I've talked about a land value tax um, for the last year, actually for, for many years. Um, just to situate it for listeners, um, a land value tax has been around in New Zealand uh, from ni- uh, 1891 to 1991. Um, and a, a student helpfully wrote a 300-page PhD uh, dissertation on land value tax in New Zealand <laughs> from 1891 to 1991. So it has been around. Mm. Um, it is being used in Australia um, in, in certain ways. Um, and around the world as well, and places like Singapore um, and Hong Kong have also used them. So essentially, it's a tax on the land value yes. of your property. So not the house on top of it, purely the land value. And people who are homeowners will see that when they get their rates information, yes. those two different yep. sums. Yep. Yep. And in a way, I mean, New Zealand has an exceptionally strong land valuation system. I mean, you could say you know, New Zealand's always been a land-based The data economy. is there. The data is there. Uh, a lot of uh, reformers in the US who are looking at this, um, Andy Burnham, um, Labour Party guy, um, Mayor of Manchester, Mayor of Manchester. Uh, has been promoting this as well. I mean, the data is really critical because splitting out the valuation differences between what's known as improvements, essentially your house and other buildings, and the bare land can be challenging. We've got all that. So we've got a very good system. So the tax um, is applied to the residential value of land. Um, we have pitched it at 0.75%, which we think will raise around just over $7 billion. Which means in brass tax terms for someone who lives in Auckland, not uncommon, terrifyingly, to be for someone in a, in a, in a, in a house sitting on a bit of land worth a million dollars. What does that what does that calculate as as an annual tax? Yeah, I mean, when I look at well, that's quite simple. Taking so let's say you have a, a land value of a million dollars, yes. that's seven and a half thousand dollars a year. So it's not a crazy number, but obviously it, it's extra. But of course, on the other side, and the reason why we call it a rebalancing hmm. um, tax, which you're getting income tax cuts on the other side. Now, the impact on individuals is going to vary. 
depending on your household structure um, and the value of your house, value of your land. I mean, essentially anyone on a kind of living in a median value house on a median income or household income is probably going to be better off. So I'd say probably 60% of people will be better off under this. But it's um, obviously going to depend household to household. Mm. For, you know, taking the difficult issue first for um, people on superannuation who might not be... And remember, that that is taxed, and they and for many of them, they yeah. do get other income. And they might have bought that house for a tenth of the yeah. <laughs> value of that land check. So, But anyone essentially who is, yeah, who is cash-challenged yeah. um, can defer that until the property is sold. Now... This was raised with me when I was um, a counselor in Christchurch, chair of finance, and a lot of people would call me up and say, look, my rates bill is crazy and I don't have the cash to pay for it. Mm. And my rates bill is high because my property value is high, which is not entirely true. Um, it's more to do with proportion. Yes, and we, every, yeah. every year when rates get published, we have the same conversation. Every, 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 <laughs> everyone opens the envelope and screams. Yeah. <laughs> So I actually brought in a piece of, well, what we'd call legislation, but a rule in Christchurch that you could basically defer your rates mm. um, until you sell your house. Not many people took it up. Mm. So I think it's one of those things that... But it's know, important, isn't it? Because a capital gains tax, which has proved hugely controversial and has now become untouchable politically... Yeah, I think it's probably With the two-man It does amount to a tax on an earning. So you sell, you sell, you make, I mean, it's there in the, it's there in the, on the side of the tin, gain. You know, you make a capital gain and that's taxed. The issue with the LVT is that you're not seeing any money coming in that's being taxed. It's, so it looks like you've chucked a new tax on, on the, on the homeowner. But you're saying that you can go put that to one side until such point as I sell my house? Is that what you're saying? Yes, if you're on superannuation. Only if you're on superannuation. Yeah. Now, there will be, I'm sure somebody will come up with a scenario where there is somebody on a very low income who happens to own a home. Mm. Now, it's very difficult to do that because, as anybody knows, trying to get a mortgage to buy a house is very difficult and the bank likes to know you have the income to repay the mortgage. But there might be people who, for example, essentially are grandfathered in like they've owned a house for a long time, but they don't have a lot of income, but they're not yet retired. Um, so, you know, we'd probably look at something like that. And as I explained to somebody, it's, if you, someone said, oh, is this an inheritance tax um, or an estate tax? I said, well, I can, you could look at it like that, but it's more, you're not paying a capital gains tax. You know, you're, you've never had to pay tax on the gain um, in the value. Now, remember, the, the key about the land value tax, and there's, oodles of articles and research and about it. It's been around for a long time. Henry George popularized it in the 1870s with his book Progress and Poverty. And it has been, you know, it's been in and out of favor. Um, you know, the liberals pushed it in the sort of early 1900s. David Lloyd George tried to bring it in. And of course, the landowners were very powerful there and they, they didn't really sort of want to have a bar of it. Mm -hmm. But essentially what it does is it captures the value that is implicit in land that is there by virtue of public investment. So essentially you have a bare piece of land over here and you have a piece of land, you know, here with a house on it and it's got shops and schools and whatever. That is more valuable. And it's more valuable from that land over there because it's got all these amenities around. And those amenities come primarily from public investment. Now, the whole point of the land value 
capture is reflecting that the increase in the value of the land is down to that public investment. So when people go, oh, you know, but I bought my house and it's earned all this money, it's like, well, actually, yeah, you might have built a nice house on it and you've done renovations. Sure, that's not, we're not taxing on that. It's the land value aspect that is being taxed. So you could think of it as a, a tiny annual capital tax if you looked at it in that respect. Um, but essentially, it is also a big driver in the lack of productive investment, the focus on housing, and essentially the fact that our housing is unaffordable. So, add it, so when you think about the rebalancing and the tax switch, we're essentially trying to say, okay, uh, incomes to house prices, which have been running at, we're in Auckland at crazy levels, like 12 or 13, need to come down. Now, if we can get that down to six or seven, that's going to make housing way more affordable. You just said you think the capital gains tax is probably dead. Yeah. Just because just, just, just it's, it's not that good a tax, to be honest. But that's not the reason, is it? Well, that's not the reason it's dead. It's dead because it's politically unpalatable yeah. and that the, 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 the two main parties, the Labour Party who pushed for it, and we had Phil Goff on this podcast recently saying he still backs it and, and doesn't regret pushing hard for it, but it's a decision has been made that it's an electoral suicide. And what is different about this one? Surely the same group of property-owning classes, of people who vote, you know, no, no one, there is, it's a, everyone votes who, who is in the group that you're targeting here. So <laughs> yeah. it's a non-starter. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, what I'm surprised about, say, with the membership and, and the supporter base of the Opportunities Party is, yes, we are attracting more and more younger people, but we actually have quite a lot of older people as well who go... And actually, I was at an event in Islam a couple of nights ago, and one of our supporters brought along his 28-year-old daughter. And he said, she's living at home. She <laughs> can't afford to move out. So there is an intergenerational conversation going on here. So quite frankly, anyone aged under 30 should be voting, running down to vote for top and just queue up a year in advance to get your vote in because you're going to be better off. But also, we're going to change the landscape for how living is going to be. And yes, for, let's say, the people who have shares in the bank of mum and dad who, who might actually be able to help their kids out, yeah, they might go, well, yeah, I'm, I've got my own family tax. I'm happy to pay that. But actually, that's not good for our social cohesion. That is not a good um, state for our society to be in. And actually, we'd like to get to the point that we were maybe 30, 40 years ago where you said to somebody hey, go to school, study hard, get a job or a degree or whatever, go out into the world. And the sense that if you worked hard, which, you know, people love to use the word hard, but if you worked, you could probably afford to buy a home or rent a home or whatever. That is no longer possible. You can't kind of look your kids in the face and say, oh, yeah, just work hard and you should be able to save up $200,000 for deposit. They'd look at you and go, huh? And what about my student debt? Huh? So a lot of them are just downing tools and living at home um, or living wherever. So I think from this is a big social issue. You know, we have, you know, it's entrenched poverty in certain parts of our society. And I would say to those people who may be, you know, more on the conservative side or, you know, the property owners who scream me about crime and all that, well, if you want to solve that, you better solve the housing issue. In the past, TOP has foregrounded in terms of its 
later economic and tax falls into it too, pledge the UBI, the, the, this idea of a, of a universal benefit where basically every, everybody gets it and uh, you need a bigger tax take in order yep. to make that happen. Is that still part of the Opportunities Party's thinking? Yeah, no, it is. And so when I looked at the overall program we needed to bring in, I thought, actually, this is going to take some time. So what we're going to do is we're going to split it into two phases. Phase one is going to be essentially term one in Parliament. Phase two is going to be term two. So I said, okay, we want to bring a UBI in by 2029. Mm. And this is how we're going to do it. Phase one is the tax switch. Phase two we, is a broader tax switch. So in terms of bringing in, obviously, the income tax cuts, um, bringing in the changes to company tax, to trust tax, closing all the tax tax loopholes, creating a single flat income tax, um, probably increasing the range around LVT to apply to all land, because some people said, why is it just residential land? Because that's the problem we're trying to deal with right now. So that is still the goal. Um, but I think we needed to set sort of a clear pathway to get there. So in the scenario where, let's say, you know, I think it's fair to say if you were to win Islam, that's obviously a success. You get 3%, you bring in four or five MPs, that's a success. You're in a position to be in the room. What are the other things, the conversation is, you know, let's be realistic. You don't even, you, you want to sit on the crossbenches, you want to provide your confidence and supply. We can give you a couple of things. What are your things? What's your list? What's, the, what's top of that list? I think clearly the tax switch is critical. If we don't tax property properly, we're going to have the same problem that we continue to have, which is basically unproductive investment um, in property. And, you know, when I look at the, the policy we proposed on the weekend around housing, you know, three, the $3 billion community development fund, four community housing associations, um, a different approach to how much money you can borrow to invest in residential property. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in there, and it's all about pulling all these levers at once. So that probably is the focus for us. Um, and sure, you know, if if one, you know, block came and said, yeah, we'd love to do this, then we'd go, great, we'd love to support that. So I'd say that would be our priority. We will be talking next year, you know, health, education, transport, um, but also public investment. So I'll be, you know, I can be quite clear that we do not have any concerns about the level of public debt. Now, if Grant Robertson wants to start, you know, <clears throat> bringing in his new sort of austerity uh, bans around, you know, debt to GDP numbers, we don't care. The debt to GDP number for us is not a big issue. The constraint, obviously, in the economy is inflation, its capacity to deliver. So we'll be talking a lot about long-term plans around infrastructure, um, how we invest in it, what sort of pipelines we deliver. Um, so, you know, some of those bigger picture investment things. So, again, next year I'll have a bit more to say about how we approach investment in public services. But essentially our approach is, you know, how can we build a better future for the people of New Zealand and what are the building blocks that we need to put into place? And I just don't see that from Labour or National. It's, um, it's just, you know, they just pick at each other all the time. And we need something a little bit more aspirational. This is, this is I guess, this is top 3.0. Mm. Uh, we, we remember Gareth Morgan and then Jeff Simmons, yep. uh, who had been his deputy, uh, came in for 2.0. Is this the last shake of the dice, do you think, for, for the Opportunities Party? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would probably say yes. 
Um, though if the threshold gets lowered, mm. and actually I'm seeing the electoral review panel next week uh, in Wellington, and I think the first thing I'll say to them is, have you read the Law Commission report from 2012? Why on earth are you wasting time asking people about this? How low, how low, would, you, how low would you put it? 3%? Yeah. Yep. I mean, I think it probably should go, but I think just in terms of kind of, you know, due diligence, probably 3% makes sense. Because then I think if you look at the numbers, if we had a 3% threshold now, you know the Māori Party would be in Parliament. You know TOP would probably be in Parliament. You know New Zealand First would be in Parliament. And that's not bad. Then we've got seven parties and the opportunity for others to appear from time to time. The Voices for Freedom Party might, might look, get it. How's that? There could be, you know, I can't ever see um, those particular groups getting themselves together um, and actually having any kind of co coherent policy platform that wouldn't be covered by a New Zealand First or an Act um, when push comes to shove. But I think a 3% threshold, you would see also just a different approach because there is just so much time wasting around that threshold and the idea that you have a wasted vote. And, you know, one Labour MP said to me recently, oh, we like the wasted vote because they all come to us. So you've obviously talked to, to Jeff Simmons. He was, he mm. was part of the process that yep. saw you where you are now. Have you talked to Gareth Morgan? I have had, no, not in terms of top, no. Mm. Um, I did bump into him oh, over the summer and, you know, we had a chat. How are you going? Uh, but we haven't spoken about this, no. I mean, I think, you know, it's Gareth, you know, he's a guy with strong views. Um, he did his dash. You know, he tried to take uh, the Morgan Foundation from a think tank into a political party. Did really well. Who knows how things would have been if he'd managed to get on the TV and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, it is what it is. And I think, you know, he's moved on from that and that's fine. And, um, yeah, we'll see what we can do. I, th I think it is possible. And I think obviously Ireland makes it possible. If you said, can we get 5%, I'd say, oh, that's pretty tough. That's I mean, pretty there tough. are plenty of ways to skin a cat, aren't there? Which brings me to the obvious question. Do you have a position on cats? Yes, I, I love cats. Um, <laughs> I'd say I'm more of a cat guy than a dog guy, to be fair. But... Um, yeah, no, I love well, cats. That's really not going to play well with the bass. I love cats. I, I do, unfortunately, suffer um, from an allergic reaction to cats. So I don't have one at home, but I've got a neighbour who's got a cat who I sort of talk to occasionally. Hey, be be before I let you go, you, you and I just purely by chance were at the same breakfast this morning, an event um, hosted by the Auckland uh, Business Chamber with Simon Bridges interviewing um, Jai Shankar, the foreign minister for India, the first, first, first trip by a foreign minister from India for many decades. What did you make of that? And your, your father was born in India mm, and, yeah. then, and then migrated to the UK. Mm. So what is your sort of involvement with the, with the Indian diaspora? If yeah, no, look, I, I'm quite involved. I was uh, on the board of the Asian New Zealand Foundation for three and a half years and, um, yeah, very involved with a couple of um, local Indian organisations like the Business Council. And, you know, a big supporter of particularly the young professional, you know, Kiwi Indian mm. uh, diaspora. They do great things. They they don't have a political home. They don't think they get a lot of attention. There's a huge amount of innovation and energy and enterprise there. Uh, there's a sense that New Zealand's going a bit backwards um, in its relation uh, to India. The way immigration treated a lot of people over COVID has mm -hmm. really left a scar. Uh, but it's a great opportunity for New Zealand. I think uh, 
the minister coming is great. He said some interesting things about um, India. It's a more connected, you know, confident country um, with a an advanced place in the world. And I think his messages for New Zealand were pretty clear, you know, stop worrying about FTAs and focus more on business to business and people to people relationships. And I think, you know, we've had so much focus on China, but actually we should be having a huge focus on India, but not on trade agreements. You know, just stop talking about dairy and start talking about business. It's a, an incredible, huge market. And actually what we're going to do with India, I think is going to be more focused around business, technology, innovation. Um, and that's where we should focus energy. Thank you very much, Raf Manji, for coming and we'll uh, catch up again in election year, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. Thanks much. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.